a little tricky to try to get it. But Second uh, Peter chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series here at the church, taking a break from our walk through the book of Acts. And then the last couple of weeks, we've looked at different psalms and the Psalter. Uh, today, we start a new sermon series uh, that we will work with for the next four to five weeks. Uh, we'll be in Second Peter chapter 1 this morning. Uh, and we'll pick it up in verse 3 when we get there. I want to start with a story. You might be familiar with it. Um, in 2009, January 15th, on a Thursday morning, an airplane left an airport in New York on its way to North Carolina. Um, the captain uh, was Captain Soli, or they called him, his real name Chelsea, his name was Soli, um, Solenberger III. And about two minutes uh, after takeoff, on their way to North Carolina, they hit a flock of geese. And the geese came into their engines uh, and just tore things up. Uh, So both engines had significant failure, uh, and they realized very quickly they were going to crash in about three minutes. Um, They had nowhere to go. They had nothing to do. They couldn't, like, engage their backups, okay? They were done. This trip was over, uh, and they needed to figure out a way to get out of the sky alive. And so they looked off in the distance uh, solely, and then there was another captain in the plane with them. And there were two airports not too far away from them. Uh, And so that was their first plan was let's make it to these airports and get down before we lose power and we can't keep going anymore. They quickly figured out that they couldn't reach these airports. And so they went into an emergency routine to try to land on the Hudson River, uh, which I'm not a pilot. I'm told that's an impressive thing to do, to land a plane in in a body of water, okay? And so from what I've heard, they had to go through dozens and dozens and dozens of steps in the two minutes before they were going to hit the river, and each one of them had to be executed perfectly, okay? So they had to finish off, latch off certain like seals and latches on the plane so that they'd be airtight when they hit the water. They had to slow their speed and figure out the right angle to guide so that they'd have the right speed when they hit the water and be able to get into the Hudson quickly. And it was a period of about two to three minutes where, again, just these dozens of, of things had to be executed for anyone to stay alive in this plane. And if you remember the story, they end up landing in the Hudson River, and everyone's safe. It's, it's this miracle. That's what the newspapers, the, the stations, the news station said. It's this miracle. This guy is a hero, Captain Soli. I mean, this amazing emergency landing that most people <laughs> probably, even some pilots, would not be able to do. Now, I tell you that story because I think inside of that story is the key to Christian living. I mean, it's the absolute fundamental key to how it is you and I follow Christ and live as he's asked us to live. There's a huge problem in kind of the Christianity that you and I live and dwell and have our being in, okay? The problem is this. We have sold heaven very well. We've sold forgiveness really well. We have not sold Christian action very well, Christian behavior. And so, I mean, again, if you want to go to heaven, you want to go to hell, which one would you like? Eternal burning, away from everyone you love, or heaven with God. Okay, I'm on board. Heaven, I'm good, okay? But we have a hard time getting people to understand, and if we're honest, we have a hard time having ourselves understand. If you're anything like me, what we do between the time we're forgiven and the time we die. And we know that we should act differently, and we should should try to get rid of some bad habits and start some new habits, and we know that we should, should live Christianly. We should think like Christians. We should talk like Christians. We should act like Christians. But we have a really hard time doing it. In particular, I think we have a hard time answering two questions. Why? Why act like a Christian? Why live like a Christian? Why think like a Christian? I'm forgiven. I've already been forgiven. I'm going to heaven. Why should I change my behavior? And then two, how do I change my behavior? If anyone has tried to follow Christ's commands, has gotten past that first question, why, okay, I should, and then tried to, 
they've found it's a hard road. It's not as easy as making a decision. I'm going to live like Christ. And then you find out, oh my gosh, I can't. Every step of the way, it seems like I'm not capable of doing this. And I think, again, this story gets us to the key of both of those questions. Why and how? When you look at this captain making these dozens of split-time, real-time decisions in the moment, like second nature, and we call it a miracle, we need to think carefully about how we're using that word miracle. In one sense, yes, it's a miracle. I mean, this is gracious act of God. In another sense, though, the captain <coughs> is having years and years and years of learning and studying and practice pay off in a split second. And perhaps no one else or only a few people could have been able to do that. I know if you or I were flying that plane, right? It probably would have gone bad. We probably all would have died, okay? <laughs> Not to make light of the situation. So, I mean, if we did what came naturally to us, Everyone's like, well, this seems right, okay? Again, crash and burn. Or if we said, I'm sure there's a manual around here. <laughs> Look it up, hit some geese, okay? Go through the steps, right? You're, you're gonna, you're, we're all going to crash. I mean, we don't have time to do that. What happens, though, in that split second is this one pilot, the years and years and years of practice and training that he's had, all come together, and without thinking about it, it's second nature to him. And he acts on it saves the day. Now, some might call that the power of habits. And some might call that the result of years and years of, of study and learning and practice. But the ancients had a word for it. They called it virtue. And I think virtue is the key to learning and, and developing ourselves as Christians, to, to thinking more like Christ, to acting more like Christ, to behaving more like Christ. I think virtue gets us in the door. It explains why we should do that. Why do we do the hard work of trying to transform our character? And also, how do we do that hard work of transforming our character? So let's look at 2 Peter um, chapter 1, verse 3. And, and, and get, indeed, we're going to see this, this idea of virtue pop up and, and talk of how you and I should walk as Christians. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, if you'll read with me. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, let's stop and talk for a second. We'll keep reading. Peter's starting off here saying his divine power, God's gracious action in our world and in our lives has come down and rescued us, has saved us, has given us grace, has brought us into his family. And you see, that's actually the promise here, right? The promise is that you might become partakers of the divine nature. This is kind of an Eastern thought. We don't think of salvation in that, in that way. We think of salvation as, again, we're forgiven. We had guilt. Now it's gone. We're forgiven. We have right standing before God. But there's another way to see salvation, which sees it as you and I getting to participate in what makes God, God. So as Christians, we believe God is Trinity. He's triune. There's Father, Son, and the Spirit. And from all of eternity, they've existed in this perfect relationship. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. And the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And it's this perfect community of fellowship with self-sacrificial love flowing back and forth between the three persons of the Trinity. And salvation at times is, is seen as human beings being brought into that relationship. We're adopted as sons and daughters. 
we're given the spirit. We're brought into that relationship. And so we get to experience. He says we're partakers of the divine nature where they've experienced for all of eternity between the three persons of the Trinity. You and I get to experience. We're brought into that family. We're saved from, again, the world, from corruption, from sinful desires. An act of grace. God's grace comes down on our lives. And the entire Christian life, even when it requires effort on our part, even when it requires hard work, all starts in this context of grace of God's gift, of God's initiative, his power on our lives to bring us to himself, to reconcile us. Verse 5, though, he says, For this very reason, because of all of this that's happened, because he's given us all things for life and godliness, he's invited us to participate in the divine nature. Verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort. You might want to underline those two words here, every effort. This is action, and this is all the action you've got. Every effort. Uncover every stone, look around every corner, make every effort to do what? To supplement your faith. To get more in your life than just that trust in his salvation. To supplement it with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. He says, take the faith, take that gifting that God has given you, this promise, this initiative, and supplement it with virtue. And then this list of of different lifestyles and characteristics, okay? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's an interesting question to answer. What would it mean to know Jesus but to be ineffective and unfruitful? I don't think it's something we want to experience. It's not something we don't want to do. So we want to, we want to supplement our faith with these things. It will keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord, our King Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In this way... Practicing these qualities, living this life, in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now I want to focus in on this word virtue. He says supplement your faith with virtue. For the next four or five weeks, the series is called Virtue. We're going to be looking at virtue, how it works, what it is, how you and I participate in it. Again, I think it's the key to you and I living the Christian life. He says supplement your faith with virtue. Now virtue could be understood as Moral excellence, as being a godly person or a good person, as as being a person that's admirable. But virtue is a very specific kind of goodness. It's a very specific kind of moral excellence. It's the kind that comes after years and years and years of practice and training and hard work. Virtue actually begins to be developed, this idea, a few hundred years before Jesus is born and lives and dies and, and raises again. Um, There's a a philosopher called Aristotle, and he um, was dealing with these concepts in a certain book he wrote on ethics, uh, and these concepts of how human beings can and should behave, how we should act ethically, what our lives should be characterized by. And Aristotle developed what we call virtue, this idea of virtue, this theory of virtue. And here's how it goes. There are three big parts to virtue, okay? And this is what's being referred to here. Supplement your faith with virtue. Here are the three parts of virtue according to Aristotle. The first is a telos. 
a goal. This is the Greek word for goal. Say telos with me. Telos. telos. Some Greek scholars in here. I like it. Okay, telos. Aristotle said you need a goal. You need to know where you're going. Because that's going to influence how you act, right? I mean, if you want to be a good chef, you're not going to spend all of your time making shoes, right? Those are two conflicting things. You want to be a good chef, you might start learning some recipes, practicing your, your baking skills, those kind of things. You need to know what your goal is when you think about how you should act. You've got to have a goal, a purpose, an end game. What's your telos, your goal? Now, for Aristotle, this was happiness. He thought the goal of being a human being is to be happy, and what he meant by happiness was maybe a little bit deeper and richer than sometimes how we use the word happy. He meant a human who's flourished, who's the very best that they can be, who's not moved by the ups and downs of life, but is happy in their own skin, lives life to the full, to the brim, no matter what happens. He says that's our goal, a human who's flourished, a happy human. And so that's the first part. You've got to have a goal. You've got to have a telos. And then once you have that, you need to start thinking through, what are the characteristics of a person who's able to arrive at that goal and then flourish when he's there. And he called these virtues. What are these strengths? What are these characteristics that would make up such a human? So you have the goal. You think through how one might arrive at the goal. What kind of person one would need to be to get there. And then the third part is you start to practice them. You start to implement them. Until they become second nature. And you do it over and over and over and over again. And then on the thousandth time, you do it without thinking. Because your character has been transformed. These are the three big parts to virtue for Aristotle. Now, the inner logic here is that you're at point A as human beings, and you need to be at point B, okay? So human beings are in a not happy place for Aristotle. They're, they're moved to and fro with the wind, okay? They can't handle the ups and downs of life. They're not living life to the brim, but they need to be at point B. And so he says, take stock of that. Point A, point B, and then figure out how you can get from point A to point B. Now, as Christians, we, we realize this, right? We realize that Christ has found us, God has found us as broken and messed up people. Again, if you're anything like me, okay, he finds you with years and years and years of a bad track record, track record behind you. Lots of bad habits, lots of bad actions. Just not the best person, okay, who's ever been. Not that you're evil, not that you are compared to other people, a psychopath, right? But you just don't have the kind of life that's characteristic of a Christian. We're at point A, and we look toward point B, which would be someone who we know, maybe, who just exemplifies all the characteristics of a Christian, who looks like Jesus, talks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, and then we've got to figure out how to go from point A to point B. And here's where we have the problem as a Christian, as Christian culture around us. We don't know why necessarily we have to move from point A to point B. And, and then if we figure out that we should, we don't know how. And this is where virtue comes in and leads the way. Now there are other options than virtue, ethics, okay? Than trying to practice these characteristics to get to your goal. One option is rules, okay? Following rules. Perhaps to get from point A to point B, all you need to do is figure out all the different rules that you need to follow. And one might go to the scriptures and find certain rules. You've got the Ten Commandments. You've got these other rules all throughout scripture. But there's a few problems inherent with only trying to change through rules. The first one is rules have exceptions. And rules don't necessarily meet all the new situations that you'll encounter. I mean, think about how many rules you would have to memorize to be able to know exactly what to do in every situation that occurs in your life. And then think through, 
Just because you follow a rule, does that mean you're a new person? Does that mean your character has been transformed? That you're a new creature? That you have a new heart? No. I mean, you can, you can conform your external actions without actually transforming your internal realities. This would be the alcoholic, right? Who spends his entire life not drinking, but hates himself for it and hates the world for it. It's a struggle. He's not changed, but he's following the rules as best he can. But it's, perhaps there's a better way. Perhaps there's a better way forward. So you have the rules approach to get from point A to point B. So, so some people say, okay, I'm a sinner, I'm broken up, but God has saved me, his divine power has come into my life, granted me these things, so let me figure out all the rules I need to follow to get to point B. I think there's some problems with that. The other option would be, for those who are dissatisfied with the rules approach, is to just kind of do what comes naturally, to be authentic, to express what's really on the inside. Now, the big problem with this is what happens when what's on the inside is really bad. <laughs> But what's on the inside is a liar and a thief, a lustful, perverted person, right? I mean, what do you, what do, you do there when what's on the inside is, is not good? It's not worth being expressed. And to both of these different options, virtue comes in and says, instead of thinking about rules and actions, think about character. Think about what kind of person you should be, not necessarily these blind rules you should follow. And then for the people who want authenticity, virtue says, yes, but you have to get it through work. At first, you might have to do things that don't come naturally to you as you follow these characteristics that will get you to your goal. But again, for the person who's been patient a thousand times from having to bite their tongue and keep the thoughts in their mind, perhaps on the thousandth time, they're patient without thinking about it. And as they're reflecting on it later, they realize it's just kind of become a part of who they are. Um... I once had a, a student come to me and, and ask me about a, a passage in the, the New Testament where it says, God desires a cheerful giver. And he said, well, since I'm not cheerful about giving, I mean, does that mean that I don't have to give, right? I mean, God wants my heart to be happy about it. I'm not, so I guess I just won't give until I'm on board <laughs> with the whole program. And we all kind of laugh because it sounds silly, right? The, the answer is, no, 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 give and expect that one day you'll know why you're giving and it'll be authentic. You maybe can't expect that authenticity right up front. But character has this way of being formed. It's a cycle, okay? Who you are, what's on the inside, how you think and feel, determines how you act. I mean, you and I don't face situations from a neutral standpoint, where we just get to choose between one option or the other option. Who you are, how you'll react to things this afternoon, is shaped by the environment you've grown up in, by the people who have taught you, and by the actions that you've taken your entire life. I mean, who I am, the way I react to situations, the way I act, the way I decide between two options, is not just because I woke up this morning and decided I would do one thing or the other. It's because I've made decisions for the last 25 years of my life, and I've had people influencing me. And all of that comes together and influences who I am, how I act. But it works the other way as well. How you act, the decisions you make, slowly but surely start to shape who you are. Start to shape your character. It's a cycle. The good news is it's not a vicious cycle. You can get out of it. You can change something in it. And Aristotle says, here's where you change it. Start practicing the virtues. Figure out what kind of a person gets to where you're supposed to go. 
and start doing those type of things, even if it feels unnatural at first, even if it requires hard work and effort and sweat, because one day you'll wake up and that's who you will be. And you'll have supplemented your faith with virtue, like Peter says here. You wake up and realize that's your second nature. It's a lot like maybe learning a language. Okay, I don't know if you've ever watched a, a young one learn a language, um, but it's an interesting thing to watch. I mean, just the massive amount of vocabulary and syntax and grammar rules that they pick up at a very early age. And they're not thinking about it. They're not reflecting on it. They just do. They have other people that they're watching. They're copying. They're being taught. And they pick up on this language. It's an even more maybe interesting thing to watch an adult try to learn a second language. Okay? It's hard. It's hard to do. It doesn't come as naturally as the first time. You have to put in a lot of work and effort. You have to just front load some of this with sweat and blood and tears and just memorize vocabulary and memorize grammar rules and syntax rules that will be broken all the time, but you still memorize them anyways. Part of my bitterness as a foreign language student in college, okay? <laughs> you memorize paradigm after paradigm after paradigm. You memorize how verbs work, how irregular verbs work, how this verb that will never do what you expect to do will work in every single location. And you're doing all this hard work. And the goal is that one day that language will be natural to you. And that one day perhaps you'll be at home where that language is spoken. So if you're learning Spanish, maybe you could go to Spain and flourish there. And be able to have conversations and life and relationships in Spain. Or if you're learning a dead language like Hebrew and Greek, one day you'll read the text and you'll be at home in the world of the text. I mean, you get that's the point of learning another language. When you know you've really got it is when you read a Greek word for ship and you don't think ship. You think ship, right? The Greek word means the same thing the English word does. The Greek word doesn't mean the English word. I mean, that's how, you, that's how you know you finally got it. And perhaps one day, again, I mean, the biggest compliment for a Spanish student is for someone to say, oh, it seems like you grew up learning Spanish. That means they've, they've made it. It's become second nature to them. And I think Christian behavior, the way that we should develop our character after we've come to know Christ, works in much the same way. We perhaps shouldn't expect rules to cover all of it and perhaps shouldn't expect it to come naturally. But instead, like learning a new language, we learn how to live and act in God's new world. So again, the three steps, the three parts of virtue, you have to tell us the goal. You've got the virtues, the characteristics that you've got to practice to get to that goal. And then you've got the process of practicing them. And one day again, you wake up and you realize, this now is who I am. You, you realize that brain research, brain scientists are starting to, to see this happen in the brain, Right? The brain is a very flexible thing, and it's kind of got this wiring system, and it will reshape itself as you practice new things, as you learn new things. If you exercise your brain, it's not like exercising your body. You get muscle memory. Things start to be easier and easier and easier, more natural to you, much like a hard instrument or a hard musical score on an instrument. But the first time you play, is very, very difficult, and you play it really slow and make lots of mistakes, and the second time you play, you start to get a little bit better. Three years from now, you can play it without looking at the instrument. Because there's just this muscle memory there. You've done it over and over. It's become a part of who you are. I think that's how we should approach trying to behave like Christians. When we first come to Christ, it's hard to love other people like we've been told to love other people. And it's hard to forgive others. And it's hard to be generous with our money and our time. But when we put in the hard work of practicing it, because we know where we're going, perhaps one day... 
someone will look at us and go, it seems so easy for them. Maybe like a spectator who's watching a basketball game and sees the basketball star make a three-point shot with one second left, with three defenders in his face, and then walk off the court like it was nothing. And we're watching going, man, it's so easy for them. Like, it's just so natural. And what you've missed is the fact that they've taken that shot 5,000 times, over and over and over and over again, so that in that moment, they're just reacting. It's as authentic as you could imagine it in that moment, much like our captain flying the plane. Years and years of hard work and practice. Now again, don't mishear me. You've got to situate this in God's grace. Okay, This is all his gracious act to us and with us and among us. His spirit begins the process and sees us through the process and finishes the process. But for those who maybe expect to just find rules to help them through, I think they come into situations where they can find no rules that help them. And for those who expect to do what comes naturally, I think they'll find they'll never, ever look like a Christian. Fifteen years after they've been following Christ, they'll look the exact same. Why? Because they expected one day to wake up and to accidentally look like a Christian. This is kind of something that I say over and over again. No one stumbles into godliness, right? I mean, you don't accidentally trip and all of a sudden you look like Jesus. It's something that takes effort and intention. A community of people around you to help you learn the language. So what we're going to be doing for the next four or five weeks is looking through how we might, as Christians, follow this kind of framework, this kind of path of virtue. And I want to start off today by looking at the goal, the telos. What is the telos for human beings according to the scriptures in a Christian worldview? I think it's a little bit different than happiness. And if we can determine what the telos is, what the goal is, that will help us next week as we start to think through what characteristics will get us there. Okay? So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. Let's look at the, the telos according to the scriptures. What is it that you and I are headed towards as those who have been redeemed? Now, the classic Christian answer to, to where, what's the goal of being a Christian? What's the end game? What's the purpose? Is to go to heaven after we die and float around with disembodied souls for the rest of our lives. This answer has a hard time, or, or this kind of expectation has a hard time answering both of these questions. Why then should we change? I mean, what about our lives now after we believe will affect in any way this disembodied state in heaven? Why not just kind of do what we want to? And then again, how? I mean, how would we even go about that? But I think a more robust picture of where Christians are headed will help us answer these two questions, give us motivation, feet, and a path to go on. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 26, real famous passage. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We have, over the past year or two years, tried to really hone in on who the Holy Spirit is and how he operates and just kind of point out when we see him in the scriptures because sometimes we ignore him. And Romans 8, it's, it's funny because it's everyone's favorite passage, chapter Romans 8. But maybe one day, perhaps, if you don't pay a whole lot of attention to the Spirit, go count up how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Romans chapter 8. It's like crazy out of control. The Spirit is everywhere, doing everything. And we love Romans chapter 8 because of the message it gives us. And it gives us this message because we've been given the Holy Spirit. 
and the Spirit works with us and on our behalf, okay? Verse 27, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, here we go. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He has a destiny for them. He has an end purpose for them. He has a goal for them to go towards. He predestined them to be conformed, to be shaped, to be matched up to the image of his son, to the image of Jesus, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. For Christians, whether you like it or not, where you're headed towards is to be a human being who looks like Jesus and talks like Jesus and acts like Jesus and thinks like Jesus. To be conformed to his image, to be the type of person that Jesus is, that he was when he was living among us, that recorded for us in the Gospels, that he has been for eternity and will be in the future. Again, maybe we've been sold something else, right? Just become a Christian, you'll be forgiven, don't worry about anything else, and you'll go to heaven. We're in the scriptures. This is the path we're going toward. When we're done with everything God wants to do in us and ready for eternity, we will all look and think and act and talk like Jesus. Now, the remarkable thing about the, the way the New Testament talks about Jesus is on one hand, um, they call him, or, or they say that he reveals to us who God is. He's God, right? God in the flesh. Existed for all of eternity, created all things through him. So when we see him, when we learn about him, we learn about God, we see God. But in another sense, even perhaps as remarkable, Jesus reveals, according to the New Testament, what a human being is, what a human should look like, what humans were created to look like, to act like, to think like, to talk like. He is the one, according to Colossians 1, who's the true image of God which you'll remember is a title given to humans in Genesis 1. God creates us, and when he creates us, he defines humanity, Genesis 1, 26-28, as images of God. And our purpose, our goal, our end game is one day we'll all look like the Son, who is the true image of God. Flip over real fast to Ephesians chapter 4. Just to belabor the point. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse... 17? Does that sound good to y'all? Okay. 17. There was no game plan if y'all said no. (laughs) Ephesians 4, verse 17. This is again Paul talking. He says, Now this I say, testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Again, you're at point A. We need to get to, to a different point here. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you heard about him, were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Notice again, all the time in the New Testament, when you see ethical language, language about behavior, it's active. It's you doing something. And again, it's not you earning God's favor. It's not you earning your salvation. It's you responding with the Spirit in intention and action and effort. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness or image of God. 
in true righteousness and holiness. Here we see once again the purpose of humans, the purpose of redeemed humans. Where we're going, our goal, is in a sense where we started in Genesis 1. And we're going to get there through the Son, through Jesus Christ. To look and be the images of God, created after the likeness and true righteousness and holiness. Now if you were to go back to Genesis 1 and think through what it means that you and I are called the images of God. It's a, it's a real common term in the ancient world to have, for God to have images of himself around his kingdom, okay? Ancient kings thought they were God. Some kings today still act and think like they're God, okay? Um, but, but ancient kings thought they were God, and what they would do to help enforce their reign throughout their kingdom is they would create image after image of themselves, these big statues. They'd work out, get pumped up, get carved a statue of themselves, and go put it everywhere in their kingdom. And what it did was it reminded people of who's in charge, it was very helpful, particularly around tax season, okay? So imagine you're in a little village that's never seen this king, never talked to him, never heard of him, and you pay taxes and taxes every year to someone you don't even know necessarily exists, and you start to wonder, why should we pay taxes this year? This king everyone tells us about, I've never seen him, he's never been here. And so the king says, I know what I'll do, I'll build statues of myself, and I'll put it in every city, at the city gate, in the town squares. For some kingdoms in the ancient world, there's almost nowhere you could go where you couldn't see a statue of who was in charge. And what it does is it helps enforce the king's reign. It helps bring his will, his creative order and purpose to the area that he's reigning. And the idea in Genesis 1 seems to be that God creates humans to delegate tasks to, to be co-rulers with him, to reign in creation. He says, have dominion, subdue, be stewards over what I have. You will bring my will to earth as it is in heaven. My image bearers, the images of God, speaks to our purpose and our task. But if you know the story very well, we did a very bad job at doing that. The images cracked and were distorted. And then Jesus comes, the true image of God, and does what humans were always supposed to do, but never could. He brings God's will to earth as it is in heaven. And the New Testament, with celebratory language, says, Behold the true image of God. The true God and the true human. And you and I, if we're Christians, are going down a path that will result in us being fully human again. Worshiping God, knowing Him, and bringing His will, His creative, good, wise order to creation. That's where we're headed. That's our goal. That's our goal. Now, if that's our goal, if that's where we're headed, this starts to fill in some pieces to the why question. Why should we worry about our behavior? Why should we worry about who we are, how we act, how we think, how we behave, things like that? Well, perhaps we need to start practicing for a role that we're going to have in the future. Perhaps we need to start today to develop the skills that will be necessary to be images of God, to be stewards of God's creation, to reign with Christ. Flip one more time to Revelation chapter 20. So this is the very end of the Bible, very end of the scriptures, Revelation 20. We'll pick it up in verse 11. We'll skip just a little bit around. 2011, I saw a great white throne, him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Okay, so there's a resurrection, full bodily resurrection. Everyone's resurrected. Now, some are resurrected to the lake of fire, 
and some are resurrected to eternal life. Okay, As those whose divine power has granted us life and godliness and invited us to participate in the divine nature, the good news is we're resurrected for life. Our names are in the book of life. And it's worth celebrating. But watch what starts to occur after the resurrection, okay? So again, we're, we're already out of the classic Christian answer. We're not disembodied spirits, okay? We've come out of the ground. We've been reunited, our souls with our bodies, resurrected. Four, verse, or chapter 21, verse 1, a new heaven he sees. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place of God with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will, with, will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So you have resurrected human beings. The redeemed. You have them on a new earth where heaven has come down and joined with earth. And God dwells with his people powerfully. And then skip to chapter 22. And I want to show you something that surprises everybody. Chapter 22, verse 1. What's happening on this new heaven and new earth for all of eternity? The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, the twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Here we go, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, will worship and enjoy His presence. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, just to be clear here, the word reign has a connotation of making decisions and being given responsibilities and perhaps having adventures and challenges and tasks. The picture seems to be human beings taking their rightful place alongside Christ in a new heaven and a new earth with resurrected bodies where there are things to do, tasks to be accomplished, God's will to be manifested in creation, we reign with Christ forever and ever and ever. And if that's the goal, if that's what you and I, if we believe the scriptures are headed towards, resurrected life on a new heaven, new earth, reigning with Christ, then perhaps our behavior now is really, we might use the, the word anticipation, practice, preparation, Training. Why? Because one day we'll need it. Perhaps this is the big answer to the why question. Because we're getting closer and closer to being able to enjoy and flourish on this new heaven and new earth. Because we want to know the language that they speak on God's new creation. We want to have the skills that we need to live on God's new creation to enjoy him, to worship him, to reign with him. And if that's our goal, then according to Aristotle, we've got to start to think through what kind of characteristics does a human being have who's in the image of God, who's resurrected and reigning for all of eternity. Luckily, the scriptures give us these virtues, these characteristics that will get us to this goal, and that's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray together.
Father, we love you. We, we give you thanks this morning um, because you have saved us and you have called us and you've redeemed us. We, we confess this morning for all of the ways in which we have fallen short of our call to follow you and to know you and to be transformed into your image. For whatever reason, for not understanding what or how to do things, for giving up because it seems so unnatural to us, like we would just never be able to get there to act like that. We confess, we repent. We confess for the habits of the old life that we've allowed unchecked into our new life. And we praise you for your grace, for your forgiveness, and for your patience. And we praise you for the, the future that you put out in front of us. And we ask that you would send your spirit and work in us to prepare us, to have us learn the language, to have us learn how to be image bearers. That perhaps as a community, together, through patient and diligent decision-making and wise choices, that we would one day wake up and have this, this kind of life be second nature to us. That we would, as Paul says, be new creations. And that we would be able to live and flourish and enjoy the world that you are preparing for us, Father. We love you. We ask that your spirit would be with us. We ask that he would guide us along the way, Father. We ask that above all, we would not be happy with accepting your forgiveness and then just waiting. That we would learn to live now in light of what's coming. That we'd learn to be transformed because of your grace and with your grace. We ask all of these things in your son's name. And all of God's people again said, Amen. Amen.